Welcome back to another exciting episode of P.S. Spooky Shiz. I'm your host, Chappie, and in today's episode, we will be getting into Greek myth monsters. All right, it's going to be a great episode. All right, so I know I've grown up being fascinated by mythology and Kronos and the Greek gods and a lot of the different monsters that Greek mythology has to offer and some of their backstories that make them a little less gruesome. All right, so with that being said, let's jump into a full list of Greek mythology monsters. This is from Greek traveltellers.com there is a fantastic realm in greek mythology where eerily creatures and monsters live on their own they are born and die in special ways and live to torment and challenge the lives of mortals and gods the monsters of greek mythology are non-existent creatures unreal created entirely by the ruthless human imagination each monster usually combines some realistic elements of various existing creatures and other imaginary characteristics. They usually appear in secondary roles in Greek myths, being an obstacle to great heroes that they need to overcome, or less often, coming to their aid. Here is an almost exhaustive list and description of Greek mythology monsters. Number 1. Typhon The father of all monsters, Typhon was a the last child of Gia, fathered by Tartarus, and is considered the most powerful and deadliest of all creatures in Greek mythology. His appearance would be accompanied by a devastating storm, and his true form was thus hard to be described accurately. Some say he had a human-like upper half, and others that instead of one head, he had a hundred dragon heads. His bottom half consisted consisted of a giant viper coils which made a hissing noise he had huge wings and fire flashed from his eyes typhon was a monster that even the olympians were afraid of his mate was echidna with whom he fathered many famous monsters of greek mythology together they once attacked the olympian gods but lost Zeus, the king of the Olympians, confronted Typhon by throwing a hundred lightning bolts on him and trapped him under the Mount Etna in Sicily. I wonder if these geographic things like buried him under Mount Etna in Sicily or trapped him there. I wonder if there's like an ancient dragon that was buried in that mountain, you know, but to them it's just like a monster. What if some of these monsters were real at their time? And this is their way of explaining it. I don't know. Let's keep going. Number two, Echidna, the mother of monsters. Echidna was a half a winged woman with glittering eyes and a half of a huge scaly serpent. She had a seductive woman's face and a reptile body. She was immortal and used to drag her victims to earth's shattered pits where she liked to devour them alive. She was a live. She was living in a cave deep down beneath the earth. In Greek mythology, Echidna gave birth to many famous monsters that we encounter in Greek myths. As mentioned above, her mate was the monster Typhon. After their defeat by the Olympians and the banishment of Typhon, Echidna and her offspring lived on to challenge future heroes. 
Echidna, like other female monsters, that had the upper body of a beautiful woman and the lower body of any sort of dragon, was part of the Dracani, female dragon monsters. Number three, the Gorgons. The Gorgons were three deadly sisters whose hair was made of living, venomous snakes, and they could turn anyone into stone just by looking in their eyes. The famous sisters were Steno, Uriel, and Medusa. Medusa is definitely the most famous and notorious among her kind. According to some accounts, she was not always a terrifying monster, but a beautiful priestess of the Temple of Athena. We'll talk more about her story later. Number four, the Sirens. The Sirens were poultry with a female head. They were living in the seas. Their power lay in their upper body appearance. They were beautiful young women and had a charming voice when they sang. They used their singing to lure sailors who were passing by their island and slaughter them. The great hero Odysseus, clever as he was, sealed his sailors' ears with wax and bound himself to the mast of the ship to enjoy himself the beautiful song of the sirens without getting in temptation of following the seductive sirens. Number five, Skyla. According to Greek mythology, Skyla was the daughter of Forky and Kidos, once a beautiful nymph that the god Poseidon longed for. The jealous Aphrodites, Poseidon's partner, turned her instead into a monster, poisoning her bathwater. She had the body of a fish and a female upper torso, and dog's head protruding from her neck. She haunted the rocks of a narrow strait opposite the whirlpool of another terrible monster, Cherubis. In, in the Odyssey, Odysseus' ship passes through the strait after losing six of his men who were eaten alive by the monster. Number six, Cherubis. Cherubis is another terrifying monster in Greek mythology. She is thought to be the daughter of Poseidon and Gia. She lived opposite Skyla, on the Asian shore of the Bosporus, a narrow natural strait and continental boundary between Europe and Asia. Skyla inhabited the European side. Sharbus looked like a huge whirlpool, and at its bottom, her monstrous mouth with huge sharp teeth were waiting to devour any ship or sailors in it. Like Skyla, Cherubilus is also involved in the myth of Odysseus and the Argonauts, who passed through the strait with some loss. Number seven, Impusa. Impusa was a demonic female monster and belonged to the villainous cult circle of the goddess of the underworld, Hecate. She was a single-legged she wore a bronze sandal. Hecate wore bronze sandals as well and had donkey caps. During the night, she would leave the underworld and ascend on the world of the living. Impusa could take all forms and appeared to women and children to cause terror. She could transform herself into a dog, a cow, or a beautiful girl. She seduced travelers, drank their blood, and ate their flesh, and the only way for travelers to defend themselves was to slander her. Right? Number eight, 
harpies. The harpies were anthropomorphic monsters in Greek mythology, with a bird's body and a woman's head. They nailed the souls of the people and handled over the lawbreakers to the Furies. The three goddesses of vengeance and retribution, who punished men for crimes against the natural order. When a person suddenly disappeared from the earth, it is said that he had been carried off by the harpies to the underworld and the kingdom of Hades and the dead. There were agents of punishment who abducted people and tortured them on their way to the underworld. They were vicious, cruel, and violent. Lamia. Lamia was a beautiful queen who ruled Libya. She fell into the disadvantage of Hera because of her relationship with Zeus. The god of thunder loved her because she was a beautiful woman and had children with her who were killed all by Hera. Because of sadness and madness, Lamia transformed herself into a child-devouring monster. Since then, she snatches the children of other mothers out of envy. She could take her eyes out and put them back at will. The Sphinx. The Sphinx had a lion's body, bird wings, and a female head. She's treacherous and merciless monster who kills and eats those who cannot answer her riddle. This deadly version of a sphinx appears in the myth and drama of Oedipus. This sphinx was, stop, was stopping passerbys out of the Greek city of Thebes and asked them to answer her riddle, otherwise she would eat them. The riddle was, which creature has one voice and yet becomes four-footed and two-footed and three-footed? In the Greek tragic play of Sophocles, the mythical king Oedipus was the only one who answered the riddle and managed to finally kill the monster. The answer he gave was man, who crawls out on all fours, then walks on two feet, and then uses a walking stick in old age. The giants were beings enormous in size. According to Greek mythology, they were human-like, but huge in stature and irresistible in strength. Their bodies were scaly and ended up in a lizard tail. They had thick hair and a long beard. Their hairy hands held long and shiny javelins. Although they were di of divine origin, they were mortal. Following other accounts, the giants were immortals as long as they had walked on the ground where they were born. They are considered to have superhuman powers, enormous size, and long life. While on the contrary, they lack ethics and imagination. A famous giant was Argus, who served as a guard of Hera. Number 12, the Chimera. The Chimera was a three-headed beast. She had a lion's body and head, a tail that was ended in a snake's head, and in the middle of her back came a goat's neck and head. Daughter of Typhon and Echidna, she would breathe fire from her mouth, according to Homer and Hesiod. Bellerophon, the Greek hero in Greek mythology, was the one to kill this monster, with the help of the flying horse Pegasus. The Lernaean Hydra was another child of Typhon and Echidna, a horrible sea monster with serpentine features and many, many snakeheads. Indeed, when someone cut off one head, two others sprouted in their place. They, she lived in Lerna Argolida, and spent her time torturing the world and guarding a gate to the underworld until Heracles, or Hercules, 
was sent to kill her and save the region from her. To solve the problem with her heads, he would burn the beheaded neck before the two new heads sprouted. All right, number 14, Mayors of Diomedes. The Mayors of Diomedes was also called the Mayors of Thrace, was a herd of man-eating horses in Greek mythology belonging to the giant Diomedes. The mares, which were the terror of the reign of Thrace, or the region of Thrace, were kept tethered by iron chains to a bronze manger and were called Pedargos, the swift, Lampon, the shining, and Xanoth, Xanthos, the yellow, and Danos, the terrible. Heracles, or Hercules, defeated these monsters in his eight flavor. He fed Diomedes, their master, to his own horses, and while they were occupied with their human meal, Heracles found the opportunities to bind their mouths shut. 15. Cerberus Cerberus was the famous three-headed dog, pet of Hades, and the god of the underworld. Or pet of Hades, the god of the underworld. He was standing guard at the gates of the underworld, making sure that no dead soul would escape and no living man would enter the realm of the dead. Besides his three terrifying heads, he also had a serpent for a tail. Only two heroes managed to defeat this monster. They were Hercules and Orpheus. Heracles managed to defeat him with his strength, while Orpheus made him fall asleep with his music. Cerberus was the child of Typhon and Echidna. He had a brother from the same parents, the two-headed dog called Orthrus. Right, number 16, the Nemean lion. In Greek mythology, the Nemean lion was a lion living in the Nemean region, scattering fear in the area. The lion had very tough skin that could not be pierced by a weapon. He was also the offspring of Typhon and Echidna or Orthrus and the Chimera, according to some other accounts. This beast was eventually killed by Heracles in the first of his twelve labors. Since then, the great hero wears the head of the lion on his head. Stymphalian birds? The Stymphalian birds are man-eating birds with beaks of bronze, sharp metallic feathers they could launch at their victims, and poisonous dung. According to Greek mythology, these flying creatures were brought up by the god of war, Ares, and were pets of the goddess of the hunt, Artemis. They bred quickly and swarmed over the countryside, destroying crops and terrorizing people. Heracles defeated these creatures in his sixth labor by shooting arrows tipped with poisonous blood from the slain monster Lernaean Hydra. Okay. I'm kind of a nerd at heart, so this connection is probably made by me and maybe people like me, but reading that they had beaks of bronze and sharp metallic feathers they could launch at their victims and poisonous dung, that's a Pokemon. I don't care what anyone says. That, sir, is a Pokemon. <laughs> We've been catching them all since, you know, Greek, <laughs> ancient Greek times. All right, let's keep going. There was an Arimanthian boar. In Greek mythology, the Ar 
Arimanthian boar was a mythical creature that took the form of shaggy, tameless boar of vast weight and foaming jaws. It would sally from the thick wooded cypress bearing heights of Arimanthus to harry the groves of Arcidae and abuse the land of Sophus. Heracles was once again the hero to defeat this monster, too, in his fourth labor. In order to capture the boar, Heracles first chased it with shouts, and thereby routed it from a certain thicket and drove the exhausted creature into deep snow. He then trapped it and bound it in chains. Alright, the Minotaur. The Minotaur was born when Poseidon decided to take revenge on King Minos of Crete for his disobedience. He denied sacrificing a beautiful white bull. The god made Minos, wife, Pasiphae, fall in love with the white male bull and sleep with him. From this union, a terrible child was born, a monster that looked like a man, but had a bull's head and its strength. King Minos, not able to kill the monster and further displeased Poseidon, commissioned a huge labyrinth at the basement of his palace. The great labyrinth, built by the great architect Daedalus and his son Icarus, served as a prison for the horrible creature. According to Greek mythology, the great hero Theseus entered the labyrinth and managed to kill the Minotaur and also find his way out. Python, Python was a serpent monster presided at the Delphic Oracle which existed in the cult center for its mother, Gia. He was born by Gia from the mud of the flood of Decalion, with which Zeus ended the Golden Age. Python lived in a cave and protected sanctuary of Gia. According to Greek mythology, Apollo, a member of the Olympian's pantheon, the new gods, decided to build his sanctuary in Delphi. He fought and killed the Python, and thus established the famous Oracle of Delphi, the sanctuary of which can still be visited today in Greece. The Colcanian Dragon, or the Colcane Dragon. So in Greek mythology, it was a fire-breathing giant serpent that guarded the Golden Fleece. The Golden Fleece was a prize of the Greek hero Jason, and his crew of Argonauts were after. With the help of the witch Medea, Jason managed to overcome the guarding monster and take the fleece. It was put to sleep by the witch, and it was left alone and slain by the hero. Dragons were common creatures in Greek mythology. Besides the Colchian dragon and python, another famous monster was Leiden. This creature was serpent-like dragon that twined and twisted around the tree in the garden of Hesperides, guardian the golden apples. According to one version of the myth, the monster was killed with a bow and arrow by Heracles when he came to collect the golden apples in his 11th labor. Alright, where to begin? I think it would be helpful if I go all the way back to what I consider the first monster in Greek mythology. It's definitely not the first one because there are the Titans, of course, but one of the Titans was named Kronos, and he's the one that birthed all the Greek gods. And then we see all of the Greek gods after their ordeal with Kronos, 
they become the rulers and start having offspring that turn into monsters or creating them themselves by, you know, impregnating uh, mortal women and stuff like that. So let's dig into uh, Kronos and see what his story is all about. Kronos was the king of the Titans and the god of time. In particular, time when viewed as destructive, all-devouring force. He ruled the cosmos during the Golden Age after castrating and deposing his father, Uranus, or Uranus, or Sky. In fear of a prophecy that he would in turn be overthrown by his own son, Kronos swallowed each of his children as they were born. Rhea managed to save the youngest, Zeus, by hiding him away on the island of Crete, and fed Kronos a stone wrapped in swaddling clothes. The god grew up, forced Kronos to disgorge his swallowed offspring, and led the Olympians in a ten-year war against the Titans, driving them to defeat in the pit of Tartarus. Alright, so... Z or Kronos didn't want that prophecy to come true, so he basically ate all of the Greek gods as they were born. <laughs> so all of his children. Uh, with Rhea, he ate them. <laughs> and then Zeus, when he got old enough, helped the gods uh, <laughs> cut Kronos into little pieces after he regurgitated all of his siblings. So, Alright, let's keep going. Many human generations later, Zeus released Kronos and his brothers from their prison and made the old titan king of the Elysian Islands, home of the Blessed Dead. Kronos was essentially the same as Kronos, spelled different, the primordial god of time in the Orphic Theogonies. Theogonies, I don't know what that is. Parentage of Kronos. Uh, let's see, Gia, or Earth, lay with Ur Uranus, or Uranus, or Sky, and bear deep-swirling Oceanus, and Ceosis, and Creus, and Hyperion, and Lapisus, Thea, and Rhea, Themis, and gold-crowned Phoebe, and lovely Tethys. After them was born Kronos, the wily youngest and most terrible of her children, and he hated his lusty sire. Alright. And again, she bear Cyclopes, overbearing in spirit, Brontes and Steropes, and stubborn-hearted Argus, and again, three other sons were born of Gia and Uranus, great and doughty beyond telling, Cotus and Bryrus and Gaius. For their shoulders sprang a hundred arms, not to be approached, and each had fifty heads upon their shoulders, on their strong limbs, and irresistible was the stubborn strength that was their great forms. For all the children that were born of Gia and Uranus, which is basically earth and sky, these were the most terrible, and they were hated by their own father from the first. And he used to hide them away in the secret place of Gia so soon as each was born, and would not suffer them to come up into the light. 
and Uranus rejoiced in his evil doing. And he, Uranus, used to hide them all away in the secret place of Gia. So soon each was born and would not suffer them to come up into the light. But vast Gia, or Earth, groaned within, being straightened, and she made the elephant element of gray flint and shaped a great sickle and told her plan to her dear sons and she spoke cheering them while she was vexed in her dear heart my children gotten of a sinful father if you will obey me we should punish the vile outrage of your father for he first thought of doing shameful things so she said but fear seized them all and none of them uttered a word but great chronos the wily took courage and answered his dear mother mother i will undertake the deed for i reverence not our father of evil name for he thought doing shameful things so he said and vast gia or earth rejoiced greatly in spirit and said and hid him in an ambush put in his hands a jagged sickle and revealed to him the whole plot and uranus came bringing on night and longing for love he lay about Gia, spreading himself full upon her. Then the son of his, from his ambush stretched forth his left hand, and in his right took the great long sickle with the jagged teeth, and swiftly lopped off his own father's members, and cast them away to fall behind him. And not vainly did they fall from his hand, for all the blood drops that gushed forth Gia received, and as the seasons moved round, she bare the strong Erinias and great giantess or giants, perhaps the Coratids, with gleaming armor, holding long spears in their hands, and the nymphs, who they call Malaya, all over the boundless earth. And so soon as she had cut off the member with flint and cast them from the land in the surging sea, they were swept away over the main a long time and a white foam spread about them from the immortal flesh, and it's, it's there grew the maiden Aphrodites. But these sons whom he begot himself, great sky, used to call titans, in reproach, for he said they that they strained and did presumptuously a fearful deed, that vengeance for it would come afterwards. This is from Plato. Men believe that Zeus put his father Kronos in bonds because he wickedly devoured his children, and he in turn had mutilated his father, Uranus, for similar reasons. There is, first of all, I said, the greatest lie about the things of greatest concernment, which was no pretty invention of him, who told how Uranus did what Hesiod said he did to Kronos, and how Kronos in turn took his revenge, and then there were the doings and sufferings of Kronos at the hands of his son Zeus. Even if there were, even if they were true, I should not think that they ought to be thus lightly told to thoughtless young persons. So we look in Hesiod, Theogony, four fifty three. But Rhea was subject in love to Kronos and bare splendid children, Hestia, Demeter, and gold shod Hera, and strong Hades and the loud crashing earthshaker Poseidon, and wise Zeus. These great Kronos swallowed as each came forth from the wound of his mother's knees, with this intent, 
that no other of the proud sons of Uranus should hold the kingly office amongst the deathless dead, or the deathless gods. For he learned from Gia, his mother, and starry Uranus, that he was destined to overcome, to be overcome by his own son, strong though he was. Though the contriving of great Zeus, therefore he kept no blind outlook, but watched and swallowed down his children, an unceasing grief seized Rhea. But when she was about to bear Zeus, the father of the gods and men, then she besought her own dear parents, Gaia and Uranus, or the earth and the sky, to devise some plan with her, that the birth of her dear child might be concealed, and that retribution might overtake great crafty Kronos, for his own father, and also for the children whom he had swallowed down, and they readily heard and obeyed the dear daughter, and told her all that was destined to happen touching Kronos the king and his stout-hearted son. So they sent her to Latis, to rich land of Crete, where she was able to bear great Zeus, the youngest of her children. Him did vast Gia receive from Rhea in wide Crete to nourish and to bring up. Thither came Gia, carrying him swiftly through the black night to... Lictus first, and took him into her arms and made him a remote cave beneath the secret places of the holy earth on thick wooded Mount Aegon. But to Kronos, the mighty ruling son of Uranus, the earlier king of the gods, she gave a great stone wrapped in swaddling clothes. Then he took it with his hands and thrust it down into his belly. Wretch, he knew not in his heart that in place of the stone his son was left behind, unconquered and untroubled, and he was soon to overcome him by force and might and drive him from his honors, himself to reign over the deathless gods. And after that the strength and the glorious limbs of the prince increased quickly, and as the years rolled on, great Kronos the wily was beguiled by the deep suggestions of Gaia and brought up against his offspring, Ving Vanquished by the arts and might of his own son, he vomited up the f first the stone which was swallowed last, and Zeus set it fast in the wide-pathed earth, earth at goodly Pytho, under the Gaians of Parnassos, to be assigned thereforth and a marvel to mortal men. And he set free from their deadly bonds the brothers of his father, sons of Uranus, and the Cyclopes, whom his father in his foolishness had bound, and they remembered to be grateful to him for his kindness, and gave him thunder, and glowing thunderbolt, and lightning. Before that, huge Gaia was hidden these, had hidden these. In them he trusts and rules over the mortals and immortals. So I like hearing about how the gods were able to withstand being eaten by their father, um, just kind of, sort of shows the power that they all possessed, even as babies. So, I don't know, it's pretty cool. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. 
Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America NA, member FDIC. All right. I'm testing my mic this time. I did an entire uh, hour with my microphone unplugged. <laughs> so... I've repeated these stories, so I should be able to do them from memory, right? I'm over on Greek Myths, GreekMythology.com, where they have an article on the myth of Theseus and the Minotaur. The Minotaur being one of our Greek monsters. Alright, Theseus, a genuine Greek hero of the mythology and Minotaur, one of the most devastating and terrifying monsters are the main protagonists of a myth that involves gods and monsters, heroes and kings, and two of the main city-states in Hellenic world, Athens and Crete. The Minotaur and the Labyrinth of Crete. The Minotaur was the son of Pasiphae, wife of King Minos of Crete. Queen Pasiphae Yes, I know, this is going to come as a shock. But she slept with a bull sent by Zeus. She got a little handy person to fashion a wooden cow for this bull to impregnate. And she gave birth to the Minotaur, which is a half-man, half-bull creature. King Minos was embarrassed, but did not want to kill the Minotaur. So he hid the labyrinth, or the, hid the monster in the labyrinth constructed by Daedalus at the Minoan palace of Krosos. According to the myth, Minos was imprisoning his enemies in the labyrinth so that the Minotaur could eat them. The labyrinth was such a complicated construction that no one could ever find their way out alive. Son of Minos, Androgus went to Athens to participate in the Pan-Athenic Games, but he was killed during the marathon by the bull that impregnated his mother, Pasiphae. Minos was again infuriated and demanded Aegis, the king of Athens, to send seven men and women every year to the Minotaur. The third year, Theseus, son of Aegis, decided to be one of the seven men that would go to Crete in order to kill the Minotaur and end the human sacrifices to the monster. King Aegis, or Aegis tried to make him change his mind, but Theseus was determined to slay the Minotaur. Theseus promised his father that he would put up white sails coming back to, from Crete, allowing him to know in advance that he was coming back alive. The boat would return if, with black sails if Theseus was killed. Theseus announced to King Minos that he was going to kill the monster, but Minos knew that even if he did manage to kill the Minotaur, Theseus would never be able to exit the labyrinth. Theseus met Princess Ariadne, daughter of King Minos, who fell madly in love with him and decided to help Theseus. She gave him a thread and told him to unravel it as he would penetrate deeper and deeper into the labyrinth so that he knows the way out when he kills the monster. Theseus followed her suggestion, entered the labyrinth with the thread. Theseus managed to kill the Minotaur and save the Athenians, 
and with Aradne's thread, he managed to retrace his way out. Theseus took Princess Aradne with him and left Crete sailing back happily to Athens. Right? Aegis and the sails. Theseus's boat stopped at Naxos, and the Athenians had a long celebration dedicated to Theseus and Aradne. After long hours of feasting and drinking, Aradne fell asleep on the shore and didn't enter the boat that sailed to Athens. Theseus figured out that Aradne was not with them when it was too late. He was so upset that he forgot the promise made to his father and did not change the sails. King Aegis was waiting at the Cape Sunion to see the sails of the boat. He saw the black sails from afar and presumed his son was dead. He dropped himself to the waters, committing suicide, and since then, the sea is called the Aegean Sea. The myth of Theseus and the Minotaur has inspired numerous artists throughout the centuries who have created paintings and sculptures dedicated to the myth. All right, we're going over to MontereyBoats.com, which I think is so funny because they do sell boats, but they also have an article uh, about Hercules and the Hydra. So let's read about it. All right. So, Hercules and the Hydra. The Hydra was a serpent-like water monster with nine heads that is often re referenced in Greek mythology. It was an offspring of Typhon and Echidna, bred by Hera to kill Hercules. And if you're wondering who Hera is, Hera is the wife of Zeus. Very jealous, very matronly. Uh, so she's trying to be the head of household, and Zeus keeps sneaking around behind her back and creating more and more demigods with other women. So that tells you a little bit about why Hera usually tries to kill Zeus's offspring, such as Hercules. It was Hercules whose responsibility to slay the beast during his 12 labors for King Eurystheus. The labors were his punishment for killing his wife and six sons after Hera had driven him temporarily mad. The Hydra was Hercules' second labor. He attempted to cut off the heads of the beast, but every time one was cut off, two more would grow back in its place. Another challenge in killing the Hydra was that its breath was poisonous to all who crossed its path. After many attempts at cutting off the Hydra's head, he distracted it by firing fiery arrows into the monster's lair. Hera sent a giant crab to distract Hercules, who then sought his nephew's assistance in killing the crab. His nephew handed him Athena's golden sword, which was successful in cutting off the Hydra's one immortal head. Hercules then dipped his arrows into the Hydra's blood and placed it under the rock between Lerna and Elaeus, a sacred path. All right, however... In the end, the slaying of the Hydra does not count as a labor, since Hercules received help from his nephew. King Eurystheus forced Hercules to complete an additional task. The Hydra has been depicted throughout many pop culture films, such as Hydra 2009, Walt Disney, as well as Jason and the Argonauts, Argonauts from 1963. And... Uh, in a recent film, Percy Jackson 
and I think it's the second one in that franchise. Maybe it's the first one. Uh, the Lightning Thief one. Uh, that's where he goes and meets the Hydra guarding one of the Pearls of Persephone at the Parthenon in Nashville. <laughs> so you see all the night security people mesh into one uh, Hydra. All right, we're over on an educational site, perseus.tufts.edu. So we're on the part talking about Cerberus. The most dangerous labor of all was the twelfth and final one. Eurystheus ordered Hercules to go to the underworld and kidnap the beast called Cerberus, or Cerberus. Eurystheus must have been sure Hercules would never succeed at this impossible task. The ancient Greeks believed that after a person died, his or her spirit went to the world below and dwelt for eternity in the depths of the earth. The underworld was the kingdom of Hades, also called Pluto, and his wife Persephone. Depending on how a person lived his or her life, they might or might not experience never-ending punishment in Hades. All souls, whether good or bad, were destined for the kingdom of Hades. Cerberus was a vicious beast that guarded the entrance to Hades and kept the living from entering the world of the dead. According to Apollodorus, Cerberus was a strange mixture of creatures. He had three heads of wild dogs, a dragon or serpent for a tail, and heads of snakes all over his back. Hesiod, though, says that Cerberus had 50 heads and devoured raw flesh. Here's a quote from him. A monster not to be overcome and may not be described. Cerberus, who eats raw flesh, the brazen-voiced hound of Hades, fifty-headed, relentless, and strong. Cerberus's parents were the monster Echidna, half-woman, half-serpent, and Typhon, a fire-breathing giant covered with dragons and serpents. Even gods of Olympus were afraid of Typhon. Among the children attributed to this awful couple were Orthus, or Orthos, the Hydra, the Chimera. Orthus was a two-headed hound which guarded the castle of Geryon with the Chimera. Orthus fathered the Nemean lion and the Sphinx. The Chimera was the three-headed fire-breathing monster, part lion, part snake, part goat. Hercules seemed to have a lot of experience dealing with this family, <laughs> the offspring of Typhon and Echidna. All right. He killed Orthus when he stole the cattle of Geryon and strangled the Nemean lion. Compared to these unfortunate family members, Cerberus was actually pretty lucky. Before making the trip to the underworld, Hercules decided that he should take some extra precautions. This was, after all, a journey from which no mortal had ever returned. Hercules knew that once in the kingdom of Hades, he might not be allowed to leave and rejoin the living. The hero went to Eleusis and saw Eumolpus, a priest who began what were known as the Elysian, Elysian Mysteries. 
The mysteries were sacred religious rites, which celebrated the myth of Demeter and her daughter Persephone. The ancients believed that those who learned the secrets of the mysteries would have happiness in the underworld. After the hero met a few conditions of membership, Eumolpus initiated Hercules into the mysteries. Hercules went to the place called Tenarum in Laconia through a deep rocky cave. Hercules made his way down to the underworld. He encountered monsters, heroes, and ghosts as he made his way through Hades. He even engaged in a wrestling contest. Then, finally, he found Pluto, or Hades, and asked the god for Cerberus. The lord of the underworld replied that Hercules could indeed take Cerberus with him, but only if he overpowered the beast with nothing more than his own brute strength. A weapon... A weaponless Hercules set off to find Cerberus. Near the gates of Acheron, one of the five rivers of the underworld, Hercules encountered Cerberus. Undaunted, the hero threw his strong arms around the beast, perhaps grasping all three heads at once, and wrestled Cerberus into submission. The dragon in the tail of the fierce flesh-eating guard dog bit Hercules, but that did not stop him. Cerberus had to submit to the force of the hero, and Hercules brought Cerberus to Eurystheus. Unlike other monsters that crossed the path of the legendary hero, Cerberus was returned safely to Hades, where he resumed guarding the gateway to the underworld. Presumably, Hercules inflicted no lasting damage on Cerberus, except, of course, the wound to his pride. Right, I kind of favor that monster because, hey, I'm a sucker for dogs, so I'm going to go out. A three-headed dog. I mean, there are worse ways. <laughs> All right. Let's talk about the Nemean lion. Initially, Hercules was required to complete ten labors, not twelve. King Eurystheus decided Hercules' first task would be to bring him the skin of an invulnerable lion, which terrorized the hills around Nemea. Setting out on such a seemingly impossible labor, Hercules came to a town called Clonae, where he stayed at the house of a poor workman for hire, Molarchus. When he, his host offered to sacrifice an animal to pray for a safe lion hunt, Hercules asked him to wait 30 days. If the hero returned with the lion's skin, they would sacrifice to Zeus, king of the gods. If Hercules died trying to kill the lion, Molarchus agreed to sacrifice instead to Hercules himself as the hero. When Hercules got to Nemea and began tracking the terrible lion, he soon discovered his arrows were useless against the beast. Hercules picked up his club and went after the lion, following it into a cave, which had two entrances. Hercules blocked one of the doorways, then approached the fierce lion through the other. Grasping the lion in his mighty arms and ignoring its powerful claws, he held it tightly until he choked it to death. Hercules returned to Clanae, carrying the dead lion, and found Molochrus on the 30th day after he'd left for the hunt. Instead of sacrificing to Hercules as a dead man, Molorchus and Hercules were able to sacrifice together to Zeus. 
When Hercules made it back to Mycena, Eurystheus was amazed that the hero had managed such an impossible task. The king became afraid of Hercules and forbade him from entering through the gates of the city. Furthermore, Eurystheus had a large bronze jar made and buried partway in the earth where he could hide from Hercules if need be. After that, Eurystheus sent his commands to Hercules through a herald, refusing to see the powerful hero face to face. Many times we can identify Hercules in ancient Greek vase paintings or sculptures simply because he is depicted wearing a lion skin. Ancient writers disagreed as to whether the skin Hercules wore was that of the Nemean lion or one from a different lion, which Hercules was said to have killed when he was 18 years old. Talk about an in invulnerable lion. Uh, you guys should check out the, I think it's an action movie, but it's from the 90s, I want to say. Maybe the early 2000s, but it is called Ghost in the Darkness. Uh, if you haven't seen that, it's based over uh, <laughs> in like the trains in Africa and everything. And it has the explorers and basically people start getting killed one by one by uh, two lions that escaped that have the taste for human blood. So it's a pretty good movie. I haven't seen it in years, but it reminds me of the Nemean lion here. So we've talked about sirens before in our mermaid episode, just briefly mentioning the sirens. Little different in this one, as these are not mermaids. They are monstrous sea nymphs who rather favored birds with a human head or some kind of variation thereof. The sirens were three monstrous sea nymphs who lured sailors to their deaths with a bewitching song. They were formerly handmaidens to the goddess Persephone, and when she was secretly abducted by Hades, Demeter gave them the bodies of birds to assist in the search. They eventually gave up and settled on the flowery island of Anthemosa. The reason Demeter would have given the handmaids of Persephone, like gifts or wings or anything like that, is because Demeter, which is like the goddess of like plants, new life, and all that kind of stuff, is the mother of Persephone, who's the goddess of spring, who Hades fell in love with and captured her and trapped her into Hades. <laughs> And she only gets to leave in the springtime when it's her duties to fulfill. The Sirenes were encountered by the Argonauts, who passed by unharmed with the help of the poet Orpheus, who drowned out their music with song. Odysseus later sailed by, bound tightly to the mast, where his men, while his men blocked their ears with wax. The Sirens were so distressed to see a man hear their song and still escape that they threw themselves into the sea and drowned. The sirens were depicted as birds with either the heads or entire upper bodies of women. In mosaic art, they were depicted as just having bird legs. So we talked a little bit earlier about the creatures that they call cyclops, or there are also another race called giants. These both exist simultaneously. The Cyclops just happened to be giants with, you know, grotesque features, and they were all one-eyed. 
that was the Cyclops or the Cyclopes. Um, really, they would become the assistants of Hephaestus, which is the crippled god that makes all the armor and weapons for the gods. So his assistants are Cyclops. So they can be, you know, reasoned with and like, you know, they are nice to some people. <laughs> Apparently not too many human people, but maybe to some gods. So Odysseus and the Cyclops. The myth of Odysseus and the Cyclops is one of the most known Greek myths narrated by Homer in his Odyssey. The myth of Odysseus and the Cyclops is about the one-eyed giant Cyclops who menaced and almost put the end to the hero Odysseus. The Cyclops is one of the most memorable characters in Greek mythology. Odysseus and his shipmates encountered the Cyclops on their ill-fated return from the Trojan War. The nine-year conflict pitted the Greeks against the city of Troy on the western coast of what is now Turkey. The Greeks had finally triumphed, and many would not live to enjoy it. Odysseus's shipmates were blown far off course, and after a number of perils, they reached a small wooded island where they beached the vessels and gave thought to provisions. Odysseus had noticed a larger island nearby, from which came the sound of bleeding goats. This was encouraging to his growling stomach, and he detailed a scouting party and led it to the far shore. Here they found a huge goat pen outside of a cave, and inside all the cheeses and meat they could desire. They were lounging in drowsy contentment when the shepherd came home. The Cyclops Polyphemus The sight of him brought the Greeks to fullest attention. He was as big as a barn, with a single glaring eye in the middle of his forehead. He was one of the Cyclopes, giant blacksmiths who had built Olympus for the gods. This particular Cyclops was named Polyphemus. He and his neighbors lived like hermits with their flocks. If the Greeks were shocked, Polyphemus was pleasantly surprised. For here before him at his own hearth was a treat that would nicely vary his diet. Taking care to roll a boulder into the mouth of the cave, a stone so huge that even a few, a full crew of heroes could not stir it. He promptly snatched up the nearest two of Odysseus's men, bashed out their brains on the floor, and popped them into his mouth. Then with a belch, he curled up in the corner and drifted happily to sleep. Odysseus naturally was beside himself with concern. What had he just led his men into? There was nothing for it, though, but to wait out the night in terror, for the boulder blocked the door. In the morning, the Cyclops rolled the massive stone aside, called his goats together, and let them out, some to pasture, others to the pen in the yard. Then he sealed the entrance again. That night, he had more Greeks for dinner. Desperate, Odysseus conceived a plan. To begin with, he offered the Cyclops wine. This was especially potent wine, which he and his men had brought ashore in skins. The Greek customary mixed water with their wine to dilute its strength. But the Cyclops had never drunk wine before, diluted or not, and went straight to his head. Before he conked out, he asked Odysseus his name. Nobody, replied the hero. Well, Mr. Nobody, I like you, said the Cyclops drowsily. In fact, 
I like you so much that I'm going to do you a favor. I will eat you last. With these encouraging words, he fell asleep. Odysseus jumped up and put his men to work. They put a sharp point on the end of a pole and hardened it in the fire. Then with a mighty heave-ho, they rammed it into the Cyclops' eye. In agony, Polyphemus groped around blindly for his tormentors, but the Greeks dodged him all night long. Help! Come quickly! he shouted at one point, and his fellow Cyclops came running. What's the matter? they called in at the mouth of the cave. I'm blinded and in agony, roared Polyphemus. Whose fault is it? they shouted back. Nobody's, said Polyphemus. Well, in that case, responded the Cyclopes as they departed, you've got a lot of nerve bothering us. In the morning, as usual, Polyphemus called his flock together and rolled the boulder aside to let them out. He planted himself in the door to bar the Greeks' escape. Muttering at great length to his ram, he sought sympathy for his affliction. Whatever you do, he told the beast, don't trust Greeks. So saying, he stroked the animal's woolly back and sent him forth from the cave. Little did he know that Odysseus himself clung to the ram's belly, and in a similar fashion, his shipmates had escaped beneath the rest of the flock. When Polyphemus realized the deception, he rushed to the seaside, where Odysseus and his men were rowing hard to safety. The hero could not resist a taunt, though. Just to set the record straight, the name's Odysseus, he called across the water, but you have nobody to thank for your troubles. Nobody but yourself, that is. With a mighty curse, Polyphemus threw a boulder, which almost swamped the ship, but the rowers redoubled their efforts, and they left the blinded Cyclops raging impotently on the shore. All right. So we have to think in some of these Greek mythological stories, I know there's like superheroes, which are the Greek gods, and they all have special powers and stuff like that. So it's very fascinating. But what about, you know, some lesser known goddesses that could be described as monstrous? Um, I'm thinking specifically of the witch named Cirque. So, Cirque was one of the most powerful enchantresses of Greek mythology, who some call a witch and some a goddess. Today, Cirque is famous as the host of Odysseus and his crew as they sought to return home to Ithaca after the Trojan War. Cirque was the daughter of the Greek sun god Helios and his wife, the Oceanid Perse, or Perseus. This parentage made Cirque sister to another powerful sorceress, Pasiphae, wife of Midas, as well as Perseus and Itis, famous kings of Greek mythology. While Perseus and Aetes were not known for their magical abilities, a niece of Cirque, Medea certainly was. Right, so Medea is another witch from folklore. The sorceress Cirque. Of the three female sorceresses, Cirque, Pasiphae, and Medea, Cirque was regarded as the most powerful of the three and able to concoct powerful potions. 
but Cirque was also said to have the power to hide the sun and moon as she willed. Cirque was also known to call upon the assistance of dark entities in the form of Chaos, Nyx, and Hecate, the island of Cirque. The home of Cirque was said to have been upon the island of Aeaea, for Cirque had been brought to the island by her father, Helios, upon the god's golden chariot. This name is spelled A-E-A-E-A. So, A-E-A-E-A? I don't know. This place, this land, does not appear on any modern map. And in antiquity, there was great debate about where this place was to be found. Locations were given for the island to be found both east and west of Italy. And Apollonius of Rhodes tells of it being south of Elba which is within sight of the Tyrrhenian coastline. Cirque remained an important mythological figure, though, until the Roman period, where writers told of Aea actually being an island of Ponza, or Mount Circio, the latter being a mountain surrounded by marshland and sea, rather than being a true island. So there's a mansion of Cirque, Cirque would live within a stone mansion on Aea, a mansion located in the forest clearing. Cirque would have her own throne and was attended to by various nymphs, who also gave flowers and herbs used in Cirque's potions. Cirque also had her own menagerie of animals, lions, bears, wolves, who thought wild beasts behaved as if they were domesticated animals. Some tell of these animals having been tamed by Cirque, but others tell of them being men who had been transformed into animals by the sorceress. It was said that Cirque was in love with Glaucus, a minor sea deity, but Glaucus knew not of this love, for he only had eyes for Skyla, a beautiful maiden. Some tell of Cirque poisoning the water in which Skyla bathed, and some tell of Cirque giving Glaucus a love potion which the sea god believed would ensure Skyla fell in love with. In either case, Cirque's potion transformed Skyla into a hideous monster who later became famous for wrecking ships in conjunction with Charybdis. <laughs> I don't know how to say that name. It's like Charybdis. Just a random consonant in there. All right. Cirque and Picus. A similar tale of love scorned would be told by Roman writers when Cirque fell in love with Picus, the son of Saturn, or Kronos. Uh, Cirque would seek to seduce Picus, but she was scorned once again, for Picus was in love with Cans, a daughter of the Roman god Janus. Picus rejected the advances of Cirque and in retribution recited a spell which transformed Picus into a woodpecker. When friends of Picus came to Cirque to seek news of their friends, they being unaware of his transformation, Cirque then transformed them into other animals, giving rise to the much of the fauna found on Mount Circaeum. Cirque is most famous for her encounter with Odysseus, as told by Homer and other writers. Odysseus and his men landed on Aeaea. I 
not knowing where they were and hoping that this would be a safe refuge after their troubles with Polyphemus. All right. Quickly, though, Odysseus realized that he and his men were as in as much trouble as they previously were. For one group of men who were searching the island came across Cirque's mansion, and they bar your locusts are enticed to enter the mansion by Cirque herself. These unwary men partake of food given to them by Cirque, but as they ate, they transformed into swine. Cirque would have used her magic on Odysseus as well, but the king of Ithaca was aided by Hermes, with the god giving him advice as well as a potion to counteract that of Cirque. Subsequently, Cirque and Odysseus would become lovers. Cirque would thus transform Odysseus back into their previous forms, and for a year Odysseus and his crew lived in relative paradise. Eventually, it was time for Odysseus to leave Cirque, and Cirque gladly gives her lover help to enable him to return home. Odysseus has to travel the underworld to seek the deceased Tiresias, who would be able to tell Odysseus all that Cirque could not. Cirque thus tells Odysseus how he can enter the underworld and afterwards. Cirque also tells Odysseus how he can safely traverse between Scylla and Charbidus. As a lover of Odysseus, Cirque was said to have become sons to th become son to three sons by the king of Ithaca. That made no sense. Alright, these sons being Agrius, Latinus, and Telegonus. Of these three, Telegonus was the mace was the most famous, as well as being a king of the Etruscans. Telegonus was accidentally killed also accidentally killed his father. Subsequently, Telegonus would wed Penelope, and Telemachus, son of Odysseus and Penelope, would wed Cirque. Cirque was then said to have made Penelope, Telegonus, and Telemachus immortal through her potions, with all four later said to have resided on the island of the blessed. All right. And fitting into uh, our kind of spookiness is Hecate herself. We don't normally talk about uh, goddesses and gods uh, when we're covering these monsters, but I think Hecate fits well with the monster's theme, although I really like her, actually. But let's read a little bit about Hecate. Hecate was the goddess of magic, witchcraft, the night, moon, ghosts, and necromancy. See why I bring her up? <laughs> she was the only child of the titans Persis and Astera, from whom she received her power over heaven, earth, and sea. Hecate assisted Demeter in her search for Persephone, guiding her through the night with flaming torches. After the mother-daughter reunion became she Persephone's minister and companion in Hades. Three metamorphosis myths describe the origins of her animal familiars. The black she-dog and the polecat. Right? It's like a... I don't know if a polecat means skunk like it does now or like it did in Georgia but I digress. 
All right. The dog was the Trojan queen, Hecuba, who leapt into, leapt into the sea after the fall of Troy and was transformed by the goddess. The polecat was either the witch Gale, turned as punishment for her incontinence, or Galantheus, midwife of Alcmena, who was transformed by the enraged goddess Alithia by adopting but adopted by the sympathetic Hecate. Hecate was usually depicted in Greek vase painting as a woman holding twin torches. Sometimes she was dressed in a knee-length maiden skirt and hunting boots, much like Artemis. In statuary, Hecate was often depicted in triple form as the goddess of the crossroads. Her name means worker from afar, from Greek words Hecatos, the masculine form of the name, Hecatos, was common epitaph for the god Apollon. I wonder if that's Apollo, but it's spelled Apollon. I thought Apollon was from, like, Jewish demonology. It looks like she had a lot of offspring. The virgin goddess. Hecate was described as a virgin goddess, similar to Artemis. In art, she was often depicted wearing a maiden's knee-length dress. Right, so I guess she calls herself that. Hecate was sometimes identified with Crataeus, the mother of the sea monster Skyla. She was also titled Skyla Kegetis, leader of the dogs. Connected her with the name of the monster. Looks like number three would be Cirque and Medea. And then as far as the War of the Titans... Hecate, whom Zeus, the son of Kronos, honored above all, he gave her splendid gifts to have a share of the earth and the unfruitful sea. She received honor also in starry heaven and is honored exceedingly by the deadless gods. For as many as were born of Gia, which is earth, and Uranus, uh, the titans, among all these she has her due portion. The son of Kronos... Zeus did her no wrong, nor took anything away of all that was her portion among the former Titan gods. But she holds, as the division was at the first from the beginning, privilege both in earth and in heaven and in sea. And because she is an only child, the goddess receives not less honor, but much more still. For Zeus honors her. There is a lot of... Uh, things that Hecate is known for, such as being able to bring a light to the dark places, uh, not being afraid of the underworld or anything found in the shadows. Uh, her dogs are her, you know, creatures of choice. Um, and then, yeah, there's still people today that honor Hecate for various, various things. So... Definitely a cool addition to this list. Now we go over to History Cooperative, where they have an article on the Chimera. The Greek monster challenging the imaginable. Chimera is a monstrous creature from Greek mythology that was said to be a combination of different animals. It is often described as having the body of a lion, the head of a goat that sprouts from its back, and the tail that ends in a snake's head. It is usually depicted as a fearsome and fire-breathing monster. 
A most famous story involving the chimera comes from the myth of the hero Bellerophon. What is the chimera? The chimera of Greek mythology is one of the most ancient Greek myths about a female monster that breathes fire. It's not just a fire-breathing monster because it's angry most of the time. It predominantly breathes fire because it happens to be the mind-bending combination of a lion, a goat, and a dragon. In some depictions, a snake is also added to the mix. How does that work? Well, the lion is the forepart of the hybrid monster. The middle part is attributed to the goat, and the dragon takes his place at the animal's rear. Depictions where a snake is also included place the last venomous animal in the tail of our monster. The chimera's parents? Shocker. The chimera's mother is Echidna. The chimera was birthed by a beautiful maiden that goes by the name of Echidna. While she was a beautiful maiden with a human head, she was also half snake. Hesiod, a Greek poet, described Chimera's mother as a flesh-eating monster who wasn't bound to categorization. Categorization. That is to say, she could neither be seen as a mortal human or as an immortal god. What then was she? Hesiod describes her as half-nymph, who never dies nor grows old. While other nymphs eventually grow old, Echidna wasn't about that life. Maybe it was because of the raw flesh that she ate, because of her other half was related to a snake, but most widely it was because she lived in the underworld, a place that people dwelled in forever. Chimera's father is Typhon. The creature that fathered Chimera was went by the name Typhon. He is known as a giant that was buried in Sicily after Zeus killed him. Typhon was the son of Gia and was known to have a hundred fire-breathing snake heads. <laughs> so Typhon was a monster in his own right. Not only did Typhon have a myriad of snakes on his head, but he was also so big that his head would reach the stars as soon as he stood up. When he stretched his arms properly, he would be able to reach all the way from east to west. At least that's the story in Hesiod's epic poem that was published around the 7th century BC. In the 1st century AD, there was some speculations on the how the chimera became the myth as described by the two Greek poets. A Roman philosopher by the name of Pliny the Elder reasoned that the myth must, must have something to do with the volcanoes in the Lycia area in the southwest Turkey. One of the volcanoes had permanent gas vents and later became known as Chimera, so it's not hard to see the connections there. Later accounts also related the story of the volcanic valley near Kragus, another mountain in modern-day Turkey. Mount Kragus, or Kragus was connected to the events related to the volcano Chimera. The volcano is active to this day, and in ancient times, the fires of the Chimera were used for navigation by sailors. The story about Bellerophon and Chimera. Bellerophon was a Greek hero and son of Poseidon, and the mortal Uranome. He was banned from Corinth after he murdered his brother. He moved towards Argus, since King Priatos was still waiting to take him in after all he did. However, Bellerophon accidentally seduced his wife, Queen Antea. The hero Bellerophon, 
or Bellerophon, was so thankful for being able to stay in Argos, however, that he would deny the presence of the queen. Antia didn't agree with it, so she made up a story about how Bellerophon tried to ravish her. Because of this, King Proetus sent him to the kingdom of Lycia to see the father of Queen Atnia, King Iobates. So Bellerophon was told to deliver a message to the king of Lycia, but what he didn't know was that this letter would, con would contain his own death sentence. Indeed, the letter explained the situation and said that Iobates should kill Bellerophon. Iobates didn't open the letter until nine days after his arrival. When he opened it and read that he had to kill Bellerophon for violating his daughter, he had to think deeply for before making his decision. Bellerophon fell in love with another daughter of King Iobates. His new flame went by the name of Poloni. Because of the complex situation, the king of Lycia became frightened about the consequences of killing Bellerophon. After all, the Furies might not agree with his decision to eventually kill him. Eventually, King Iobates decides to let something else decide the fate of Bellerophon. This is where our fire-breathing monster Chimera came into play. Chimera destroyed the surroundings of Lycia, leading to crop failure and a bunch of dead, innocent people. Iobates asked Bellerophon to kill Chimera, assuming she would be the first assuming she would be the first to kill him but if bellerophon succeeded he would be allowed to marry felone or the king's other daughter off he went into the mountains surrounding lycia to search for the feared monster that was terrorizing the region one of the people living on the outskirts of the city described the chimera looked like something that bellerophon was unaware of at first. After he got an idea of how the monster looked, he prayed to Athena, the war goddess, for advice. And that's what she gave him, in the form of a white horse with winged body known as Pegasus. Athena gave him a type of rope and told Bellophron that he must catch the winged horse before he would leave to kill Chimera. Bellophron caught Pegasus and mounted the horse. He flew it over the mountains and was surrounded that surrounded Lycia and didn't stop until he found the three-headed monster that was blazing fire. Eventually, Chimera was discovered by the hero Bellerophon and his winged horse. From the back of Pegasus, he killed the monster with a spear. Although the story of Bellerophon continues for a bit and ends tragically, the story of Chimera ended right there. After Chimera was killed, she joined Cerberus and other such monsters at the entrance of the underworld to assist Hades as he became known, or Pluto as he became known in the Romans. There's a lot of monsters uh, connected to women <laughs> that I've, I've really noticed. Like uh, the Chimera is believed to symbolize female evil, but then I'm thinking to all these other monsters medusa comes to mind but it's just like all of these women who just tried to live but they angered the gods in some way be it beauty or jealousy or whatever it happened to be so i do think there's a thread we could pull there but let's keep going
All right. So we go over to thehindu.com where they have an article about two of our Greek uh, monsters from mythology. Uh, the story of Skyla and Charybdis. Imagine being caught between a whirlpool and a monster with six heads. All right. This was written by R. Krithika. All right. All right. Ever heard of saying between a rock and a hard place? It means there are dangers or troubles. No one, no matter which direction you go. Perhaps this is what ancient Greek travelers felt like when they were caught between Skyla and Cherubdis. Cherubdis, the daughter of the sea god Pontus and earth goddess Gia, was a deadly whirlpool. Three times a day, Charbdis would pull in and push out water with such force that ships would be sunk. Originally a beautiful girl, Charbdis was changed by the king of the gods, Zeus, because she stole the cattle belonging to his son, Hercules, and helped his brother Poseidon increase the area under his control by flooding the land with water. Again, we can find most of these at GreekLegendsAndMyths.com. But let's read a little bit more about Skyla and Cherbdis. I'm sorry, I cannot say some of these names. <laughs> it's spelled like Cherry B D I S. Cherbdis. All right. Skyla and Chardis. I'm just going to say Chardis, even though that's not what it is. Are two famous monsters from Greek mythology who worked in tandem on the opposite sides of a narrow strait of water. The strait was navigated by the Argo, Odysseus and Anais, and the dangers they faced were overcome. Skyla and Chardis, a rock in a hard place. Right? The elder of these two mythological monsters was said to be Chardis. For Charbdis was normally said to be the daughter of two primordial deities, Pontus, or the sea, and Gia, or the earth. Occasionally, though, Charbdis is named as the daughter of Poseidon and Gia instead. Charbdis might be considered to be a minor goddess of the tides, but certainly Charbdis was the personification of a deadly, gigantic whirlpool. The whirlpool of Cherubdis would thrice each day draw in and push out a large amount of water with such force that ships would be sunk into it. This movement of water also creates the tides. It was normally said that Cherubdis was born monstrous, but in some later mythological tales, a transformation of Cherubdis from a beautiful goddess to monster was said to have occurred at the hands of Zeus. One tale of the transformation of Cherubdis sees the daughter of Gia transformed when she had the effrontery to steal cattle belonging to Heracles, Zeus's favorite mortal-born son. Alternatively, the changing of Cherubdis occurred after the goddess had helped Poseidon to increase the size of his realm at the expense of Zeus's by flooding additional land for the sea god. In surviving Greek mythological tales, it was sometimes suggested that 
Charbdis was the mother of Skyla. Now we're on to Skyla, which is easier to say. Despite the possibility that Skyla was the daughter of Charbdis, it was more commonly stated that Skyla was actually the daughter of Force of Forces, an early sea god, and his partner Cedo. That's what they were talking about. Okay. Uh, Forces and Cedo were the parents to many monsters associated with the sea, including the Grey and the Gorgons. The monstrous appearance of Skyla was more obvious than that of Charbdis, for Skyla was commonly described as having 12 feet, 6 long necks, and with each head on the long neck full of sharp teeth, Skyla was also said to bark like a dog whenever the Anwari approached her. Those sailors who sailed close to Skyla would find themselves plucked from their vessels and eaten. The probability is that Skyla was the personification of a rocky outcrop, an underwater reef where the deadly teeth could rip open a ship's hull. Skyla is normally said to have been monstrous like her sisters, but as just as the case with Charbless, later writers also tell how Skyla was once a beautiful water nymph transformed into a monster. One tale of the transformation of Skyla sees the metamorphosis undertaken by uh, Amphitrite, the wife of Poseidon, who was jealous of the attention that Poseidon was given to the nymph. In retri retribution, Amphitrite Amphitrite would poison the pool in which Skyla daily bathed, thus transforming the nymph. A more famous tale of the transformation of Skyla sees the transformation undertaken by the sorceress Cirque. The sea god Glaucus was in love with Skyla, and wishing to woo the nymph, visited Cirque to ask for a love potion. Unbeknownst to Glaucus, though, Cirque was herself in love with the sea god. Presented with the perfect way of getting rid of her love rival, Cirque gave it to Glaucus, not a love potion, but a potion that transformed the nymph when Glaucus gave it to Skyla. So Skyla and Charbdis worked together. They were said to live on opposite sides of a narrow strait of water, a distance measured at less than a flight of an arrow. Thus, no vessel could pass between Skyla and Cherbdis unscathed, for if they avoided Cherbdis, the vessel would travel too close to Skyla, and if the vessel avoided Skyla, then it would be sucked down by the whirlpool of Cherbdis. The strait where Skyla and Cherbdis was said to reside is normally equated with the Strait of Messina, the passage of water between the Italian mainland and the island of Sicily. The movement of water between the Ionian and Tyrrhenian seas does cause a whirlpool to form, but is not powerful enough to cause danger to shipping passing through the strait. So we see Jason and the Argonauts attempting to traverse the gap between the two monsters on their way to get the Golden Fleece. They had the Nereids. Hera had the Nereids guide the ship safely. The Sphinx was a female monster with the body of a lion, the head and breast of a woman, and the eagle's wings, and according to some, a serpent's tail. She was sent by the gods to plague the town of Thebes as punishment for some ancient crime, preying on its young and devouring all who failed to solve her riddle. The region of Thebes, King 
Crayon, offered the throne to one who would destroy her. Oedipus, Oedipus took the challenge, and when he solved the Sphinx's riddle, she cast herself off the mountainside in despair. Sphinxes were very popular in ancient art, and were employed as sculptural gave stale upon the tombs of men who died in youth. In archaic face paintings, they often appear among the procession of animals and fabulous creatures such as lions and bird-bodied sirens. The harpii, or harpies, were spirits of sudden sharp gusts of wind. They were known as the hounds of Zeus and were dispatched by the god to snatch away people and things from the earth. Sudden, mysterious disappearances were often attributed to the harpy. The harpy were once sent by Zeus to, playing, to plague King Phineas of Thrace as punishment for revealing the secrets of the gods. Whenever a plate of food was set before him, the harpy would swoop down and snatch it away, befouling any scraps left behind. When the Argonauts came to visit, the winged Borades gave chase and pursued the harpies to the Strophades Islands, where the goddess Iris commanded them to turn back and leave the storm spirits unharmed. The harpy were depicted as winged women, sometimes with ugly faces and with lower bodies of birds. Maybe this doesn't come into be into Greek mythology, um, or maybe it doesn't in this wording, but the Furies, the Roman goddesses of vengeance, and the Furies lived in the underworld, where they tortured sinners. The children of Gia and Uranus were usually characterized as three sisters, Electo, or unceasing, Tisiphone, avenging murder, and Megara, or grudging. Their counterparts in Greek mythology are the Uranias. The Furies were always seen as cruel, but at the same time fair in their punishment. They can often be seen with a whip. So reading a little bit about the Arrhenias. All right, they were the Furies, which were three goddesses of vengeance and retribution who punished men for crimes against the natural order. They were particularly concerned with homicide, unfilial conduct, offenses against the gods, and perjury. A victim seeking justice could call down the curse of the Arrhenes upon the criminal, and the most powerful of these was the curse of the parent upon the child, for the Arrhenes were born of just such a crime, being sprang from the blood of Uranus when he was castrated by his son Kronos. The wrath of the Arrhenias manifested itself in a number of ways. The most severe of these was the tormenting madness inflicted upon a patricide or matricide. Murders might suffer, murderers might suffer illness or disease, and a nation harboring such a criminal could suffer death, and with it hunger and disease. The wrath of the Arrhenias could only be placated with the right. The goddesses were also servants to Hades and Persephone in the underworld, where they oversaw the torture of criminals co-signed to the dungeons of the damned. 
All right. They were depicted as ugly winged women with hair, arms, and waist entwined with poisonous serpents. The sisters wielded whips and were clothed either in long black robes of mourners or the short length skirts and boots of huntresses. So I always get the sirens, the harpies, and the arrhenius or furies mixed up. But they each have their own specific job. There's the Cretan bull. Which we kind of heard about in the story of the Minotaur. Alright, the Cretan bull was a handsome bull sent forth from the sea by Poseidon. Queen Pasiphae of Crete lusted after the animal and coupled with it by hiding inside a wooden cow crafted by the artificer Daedalus, she gave birth to the Minotaur, a man with the head of a bull. Heracles was commanded to fetch the Cretan bull as one of the twelve labors. Upon completion of his task, he set the creature free, and it eventually found its way to the Athenian town of Marathon, where it laid waste to the countryside. There it was finally destroyed by the hero Theseus. The gods placed the bull among the stars as the constellation Taurus, along with the Hydra, the Nemenian lion, and other creatures from the labors of Heracles. But I feel like Greek mythology, more than a lot of other ones, are not afraid to just hodgepodge uh, animals together <laughs> and mix them with humans. Um, so there's that, I guess. His by name derives from a hundred eyes in his head or all over his body, as he is often depicted as or on Athenian red figure pottery from the late 6th century BC. Argus was appointed by the goddess Hera to watch the cow in which Io, Hera's priestess, had been transformed. But he was slain by Hermes, who is also called Slayer of Argus, in the Homeric poems. Argus's eyes were transferred by Hera to the tail of the peacock. His fate is mentioned in a number of Greek tragedies in the 5th century BC. In all of the stories and everything, he was this big giant with all of these eyes, so he literally saw everything. Alright, let's get into the fates. So, the fates in Greek mythology, hanging by a thread. The fates, Clotho, Lachesis, and Atropos, were divinities in Greek mythology who presided over human life. Together, the fates represented the inescapability of destiny of humanity. All right. In Greek mythology, the fates were divine beings who personified the birth, life, and death of humankind. According to the ancient Greeks, the actions of humans were predestined. Humans still had free will, but the fates knew the ultimate choice and choices and actions of each person. In the afterlife, a human would be judged not on what deeds they had done, but on how they had reacted and coped to life's challenges. The three fates of Greek mythology were Clotho, Lachesis, and Atropos, and each had a different role in weaving the fate of mankind. The first of the fates, Clotho. The fates in ancient Greek were called the Miorae. This translates as allotted position or share. The idea was that the fates would deal out mankind's allotted portions of life. 
The three fates each had a different role in the process of handing out a fate or portion. First of all, there was Clotho, the spinner. When a human was in the womb, Clotho had the duty of weaving the threads of their life. Greek myth often used textile metaphors to convey intangible destiny. The metaphor often appears in descriptions as well as in art as weaving of threads on a loom or in some cases spinning fibers into yarn. Each thread represented one soul's life. This thread would follow the path of a human's life, including their future choices and actions, and the consequences would that could be created. Clotho would begin spinning the thread while the human was in the womb, and so she is often referred to during pregnancies or during the birth of human beings. The choice of mankind were or the choices of mankind were not absolute. Instead, there was a freedom and choice, and the fate of a human depended on conditional choices. The fates would take all decisions and outcomes into account before they wove the thread. The second fate, Lachesis. Lachesis was the second of the Mori, or fates, and her role was to measure the thread of a human's life. Her name translates to the allotter, which fits her role as one who allots a portion of mortal life to each soul. Lachesis would determine how long a human would live, and hence how many trials they would face in their life. Within the thread lay the fate of each soul. The third fate, Atropos. The third sister was Atropos, whose name translates as the unturnable, and she who cannot be turned. Her name refers to her unshakable position as the most stubborn of the fates. Atropos was the one to cut the thread of fate, and at that point of the cut, the mortal life would end. Thus, Atropos resembles the death of a human. After the cut, the soul, the soul would be sent to the underworld for judgment, after which it would be sent to Elysium, the fields of punishment, or the fields of Asphodel. Atropos role was vital. She chose how each person would die. She decided on the circumstances of their death, whether they, that was nobly or innobly, was up to her. The fates were often depicted as old women and sometimes as young goddesses, so it majorly depends on the artistic preference. Many representations show Atropos as an old woman, as she chose when people would die, and Clotho as a young woman, as she often presented when women gave birth. Their appearance may not have been absolute, but one consistency is the depiction in which the loom or yarn, the thread is always a stable or a staple feature to identify the fates, and they are often creating tapestries depicting the life of a human. That's not to be confused with the Greyes, uh, which are talked about in other mythologies, other Greek stories, uh, but they are three old women who can see the future sometimes, but they have one tooth and one eye between all three of them. So you'll likely have seen them on like Hercules and stuff with them sharing the eye, but I think they like to mix them in there with the fates, but they're not the fates. All right. And last but not least is my favorite Greek uh, mythology monster. And that's the story of Medusa. Because I think we all got it wrong.
maybe Medusa isn't the monster that we were told about. Still iffy on that? All right. Let me read an article to you, and then I'll tell you what I know about Medusa. So, this is from LeahMariani.com, and it starts. While we all know that Medusa, with her crown of snakes, less is known of how Medusa became Medusa. There are two origin stories from Greek mythology, both leading to her well-known grisly end. The first origin story sees Medusa, originally a stunning young woman, with beautiful ringlets of hair, so alluring that she had many visitors and suitors that came from all around to see her. She decided to take the attention, take the direction of her life, and become a priestess for the Temple of Athena. While praying at the Temple of Athena one day, she catches the eye of the sea god Poseidon, who r-words her or seduces her, depending on who is telling the story. But he does this in the Temple of Athena. So Athena at the time is wanting the attention of Poseidon, and he just uh, defiled her temple. So Athena who is so enraged at her temple being defiled, takes out all of her revenge and jealousy on poor Medusa. It has been noted that Athena, who is a goddess of war, rarely supports women. Perhaps she is the precursor to the jealous older woman so often portrayed in the European fairy tales that were to follow. To exact her revenge, Athena takes away Medusa's most prized feature, her beautiful hair. Again, it's not just her hair that's beautiful, but it's what makes people come from miles around to see her, is her hair. So Athena turns her beautiful hair into writhing poisonous snakes. Again, this is reminiscent of the latter fairy tales, specifically Rapunzel, who is punished for sleeping with a prince by having her hair removed. Athena makes Medusa unappealing to men by turning her hair into writhing snakes. It's a classic case of victim blaming. If that isn't enough, Athena makes Medusa makes sure that she will forever remain alone by gifting her with a gaze that turns others into stone in an instant. So to her, she was Athena. She was getting her revenge and basically like, oh, you have all these admirers. Well, guess what? Nobody can ever look on you again and live. You know, so it was, imagine being that girl. You're very pretty. You've decided to devote your life to Athena, and then the same god that you're giving all of your allegiance and life to doesn't see you as the victim, but blames you for the defilement of her temple and the distraction to her man, Poseidon. And that's not even her man, that's just a fling. So anyway, uh... Like I was saying, Athena ensures Medusa will remain alone forever by gifting her with a gaze that turns others into stone in an instant. 
Here we witness the creation of the original Death Stare, a weapon that has since passed on to generations of women. Alright. Medusa, however, did not wish to use her powers on mortals, and instead retreated to a dark cave. She could not look upon a friend or even an animal without killing them, so she lived a life of solitude. However, this was not to last. Even though Medusa never wanted to harm anyone, the knowledge that she had power to do so meant that she could never live a quiet life. Soon enough, men came in search of her, and eventually Perseus, the son of Zeus, finds her and cuts off her head while she sleeps. Uh, an alternate story is that he uses the reflection of his shield to kill Medusa. And guess where he got that idea from? The goddess of war, Athena. <laughs> She's all up in here manipulating around Medusa's life. Alright. The alternate origin story sees Medusa begin life as a Gorgon monster, born of the two sea monsters, and one of three daughters. As a Gorgon monster, Medusa is terrible and fierce, and is much less sympathetic than her alter ego, once human form. But what this version lacks in beauty, she makes up for in companionship, because in this version, Medusa lives with her two sisters. These gorgons are described as having snakes on their head as well, and then wings on their back, and large mouths with lolling tongues. Whether the sisters were immune to Medusa's death stare, perhaps possessing the same powers themselves, or they were protected by the darkness of the cave, we do not know. We do know her sisters, Steno and Uriel, mourned her death. They gave chase to Perseus after he murdered Medusa, and he escaped their clutches thanks only to Athena's help. She definitely had a thing against Medusa. Alright, upon Perseus's escape, the sisters released a loud, mournful howl, which was chilling to the bone. Once Medusa is decapitated, she is reduced to an object and used as a weapon, for even post-mortem, Medusa could turn mortals and monsters into stone. This uh, occurs whenever Perseus uh, finds Andromeda chained to a rock to feed the sea monster, I believe it's the Kraken or something, um, but he pulls out Medusa's head and faces it towards the sea monster, turning it to stone. Um, yeah, apparently when he was doing that, he told Andromeda to look away, but none of the king or his people heard the warning, so they all turned to stone as well leaving Perseus and Andromeda to marry without anybody in their way uh, for the kingship. But I just think it's crazy because there is so much in here that like references Medusa like a sexual being or an object. But then there's so much in here that's like, oh my gosh, Athena was ruthless in taking down this woman and like it sounds to me like victim blaming a lot because medusa was just pretty her hair was amazing but she wanted to spend her life you know taking care of the needs of the temple of athena and then she got caught up 
all up in an angry goddess. So I think she got the raw end of the deal. I do think, uh, you know, when we're taught growing up of these stories, you're thinking like, yeah, Athena helping the hero. But then as you get older, I mean, you do start to kind of identify with some of these monsters and you're like, oh, but they were cursed. Poor Medusa. <laughs> I feel bad for her. But I digress. I do think there's something if somebody wants to do like a paper or go research this some more, but there's definitely some tropes in Greek mythology that uh, don't like women very much. <laughs> or at least that's how I perceive it. But I'm sure I'll be doing uh, more mythology stories in the future. I know I do want to cover the Native American ones and the Egyptian ones and some Norse mythology. There's just so many mythologies out there. And, I mean, it can make a whole podcast of just mythologies, just stories from mythology um, that I'm excited to get into. I did buy some recent books lately. Um, a couple I haven't read on... Uh, some spooky stories involving police and uh, magic itself it coming from like all these different roots and everything. So I'd like to share what I find on those books whenever I get a chance to read them. I'd like to share some of it on here. So be on the lookout for some of that in future episodes. Um, I hope you enjoyed uh, mythology hour <laughs> today where I get to nerd out and talk about all the scary things in Greek mythology. And I know I didn't cover, you know, the lesser known things like the basilisk. No, not from Harry Potter, from Greek mythology and different monsters like that. But I digress. I hit the big ones. <laughs> all right. If you would like, join us on the Facebook page at P.S. Spooky Shiz. And then um, it's a great way to connect with me and send me stories for your future episodes. And then if your streaming service has a comment section, like what did you think about this episode, feel free to uh, send me stories that way or just comment on the episode you just heard. Um, anything like that, that engagement uh, helps me know like, what's working, what's not, stuff like that. So, all right. With that being said, stay spooky, my friends. <laughs>